Welcome back to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And we are here today with a special guest. Uh, this was recorded live at the Virginia IT Agency's Women in Innovation event. We recorded a lovely interview with Miss Virginia. Now, here on the Zero Hour, we are primarily concerned with cybersecurity, but I think we've done a good job of focusing on transformational leadership. And so I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this is worth it because if you weren't paying attention, Camille Schreier won the Miss Virginia crown by performing a science experiment as her talent, which drew international headlines. She is a doctoral student at the Virginia Commonwealth University program in pharmacology, so she knows her stuff. She is a serious scientist. And we've dealt with the uh, issues of diversity in both cybersecurity and sort of at large uh, in the professional space. So I'm just going to go ahead and claim this is totally on track with the other stuff we've done. Um, So without further ado, here is Camille Schreier. All right. We are coming to you live from the Virginia Information Technology Agency's Women in Innovation event in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I am joined this time by my colleague, Courtney Medecki, who is our VP of New Markets and Customer Success. Hi. Very happy to be here. Happy to have you. And we also have uh, Camille Schreier, uh, Miss Virginia, who... Uh, attracted international attention um, for winning Miss Virginia as a result of using a science experiment, chemistry experiment to be exact, uh, for her talent. And I would say I actually came across that article despite living in Virginia on the BBC. And then I promptly shared it with everyone I knew. Um, And I think they immediately got the impact that I wanted them to get. Um, but so on this podcast, we deal mostly in kind of transformational leaders, but we have not shied away from confronting the substantive lack of diversity in the cybersecurity sector. Um, and I think that dovetails nicely into STEM and being a Virginia uh, company. It makes total sense that we should talk to with you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks for being here. So um, why don't we just start with what led you to think of um, kind of using science as the talent portion of, of the show? So I had competed in organizations similar to this as a teenager, and I always dreamed of maybe one day being able to compete for something that would lead to Miss America. Um, but the big factor that held me back was the fact that I was required to have a performing talent. And I had a perception in my mind, um, because I'm not a singer nor a dancer, mm-hmm. that I didn't have a performing talent. And so that was something that I always thought, well, I can't compete for Miss Virginia or Miss America because I don't have a talent. And so the Miss America organization just recently changed this past year. We've changed the way that we score the girls. Um, There's no more swimsuit competition. Um, Girls are no longer judged on their outward physical appearance. And so that change resonated with me very much and made me want to compete more than I had in the past. And so that barrier still stood for the performing talent. And so I figured, you know, 
it's not that I'm not a talented person. <laughs> I have to just figure out how I can mm -hmm. represent my own personal talents in a way that would be authentic to who I was. And so I always loved chemistry demonstrations in school. I admire a woman named Kate the Chemist, who mm -hmm. I see go and do these similar demonstrations. And she's also breaking stereotypes as a woman in science. And so I wanted to, to use that as my talent and be able to show not only my science skills, but my public speaking ability. And that's one of the key roles as Miss Virginia is you are going to inspire kids in schools. You're a public speaker. You're an advocate. And so I thought that I was able to show that talent uh, through the through the demonstration that I did. And so that was why I ended up choosing it. Um, and so the demonstration was something that I had to be figured out before I could even compete because that was, you know, the, the factor that was holding me mm -hmm. back. And so that was why I decided to do it. And gosh, I didn't think it would get this much, much attention, but I am grateful for what has happened after this. Yeah. And I would say to the naysayers who say like science is not a talent, I would refute that because even like singing or juggling, whatever, it is a skill that you must hone over time. And no one is, quote, good at science. Like it is a it is a, a learned thing that you must perfect over time and probably is much like singing. You're never going to hit absolute perfection. Yes. And I feel I feel the exact same way. And one of the other things that I talk to kids about is doing things that are authentic to themselves. So if mm -hmm. I were to, you know, prepare a song or a dance, it wouldn't be authentic to who I was. And I would rather do something that I can sit there and do well and as authentic to me as a person then try to do something that has fit in a box because everyone else has played an instrument or baton twirled or danced or sang at a Miss Virginia competition or at Miss America. So I... I see it as more than just being the science and the, the talent is more than just the science. It's the speaking, it's the presentation, it's the entertainment value of it. Um, and also being able to have that talent to be able to inspire kids. Um, and science is a talent. <laughs> it, now, what I did on stage necessarily, mm -hmm. there are naysayers that say, well, this is a high school chemistry demonstration. And it isn't the most complex reaction. But if right. I were to, you know, run PCR gel electrophoresis on stage, no one would care. Right. Um, and it has to be entertaining. And that's part of talent. I think that's part of having a talent is to be able to entertain people. So it's been a right. quite and, an opportunity. And to be fair, you have the street cred. You are in the doctor of pharmacology program at exactly. ECU. It's I not like, like I just <laughs> I just do science as my talent. I really am a scientist. Well, that's um, right. And so that's one of the cool things because it wouldn't be quite as authentic, again, going mm -hmm. back to authenticity, if I wasn't doing that as my career. And so I have a background in biochemistry and systems biology. Spent a lot of time working in labs. Um, and I have never once done this in a lab because it's really just meant to be <laughs> visual and fun. Right. Um, Rather messy. It's very messy, unfortunately. The production crew at Miss Virginia, bless their souls, did a <laughs> great job in helping me with this. Um, but it really, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to show something different. And um, I'm glad that I think it's the right time in our society and culture for this. And I think that that's been able to be seen through the publicity and the media that has really picked this up. Yeah. And I wanted to just add to that. I think that the fact that you had the confidence and the ability to communicate, mm -hmm. you know, something that's sort of more complex than maybe a visual, you know, baton twirling, whatever mm -hmm. it is. I think those are really important skill sets and talents as well that to George's definition, definitely are honed over time. And I think it's amazing because I just don't think women always have the opportunities to hone those skills. Right. Mm -hmm. So very inspiring. Thank you. That's one of the really interesting parts of these types of competitions and mm -hmm. they get a bad rap and they have a stigma around them. I think 
think because of the way that pageants per se mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. seen over years and we're no longer a pageant. Miss America is not a pageant anymore. Um, we really define ourselves as a competition for young women who are hoping to build their careers. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I'm doing every day. Um, and part of the thing in that particular talent presentation was that I was really, you know, I dug my heels in on this one when I was starting to figure out the performance and getting advice from others. I wanted it to be a lecture, a small mm-hmm. lecture, and I wanted to describe what was happening. I didn't want it to be cheesy. I didn't want it mm-hmm. to be, you know, rhymy or catchy or something. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be like I was a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. funny enough, my mom and I kind of battled because she wanted me to wear a fully beaded lab coat. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, I don't want it to be a costume because it's not. Yes. And, that's, you bring a good point. I was actually going to say what stood out to me most in the photos that I saw when the news first broke was not like the enormous colorful explosion or decomposition of the hydrogen peroxide, if I did my research correctly. (laughs) It's that you were on a stage normally reserved for one conception of pageant mm-hmm. and you were in a lab coat with safety mm-hmm. goggles mm-hmm. Yep. right so that was like if if my daughter had been watching that that is something to see that is different that's what would have stood out to me as the lab coat really. yeah and that was what i was really stuck on i had to have that lab mm-hmm. coat on now we did we came to a compromise we did bead the the collar and, the, <laughs> and i have a little ring of beads around my sleeve but it's not noticeable and it's just a little bit of because you know again it's a it's a performance and it's right. supposed to be entertaining and you have to be able to to have something bigger on stage that people will be entertained by i also had sparkly pants on those were another you know com- that was a compromise um but i don't think it was distracting and i still felt like i was wearing what wasn't a costume but it really was you know a scientist wouldn't wear sparkly pants in the lab environment i mean there's no reason you couldn't it's proper ppe <laughs> as long as they're covering your legs. Um, So it was an interesting way to be able to combine both. And there's nothing to say that when you, if you go on to lecture at the university level that you could not lecture in a beaded lab coat. There's no reason you can't. It is proper PPE, 100%. And so that was what I was trying to go for. Um, And I mean, I, it really stems from the fact that, you know, you have to do this particular reaction. I mean, I'm using chemicals that I have to protect my skin. I have Mm -hmm. to protect Mm -hmm. my eyes. And so that was where it came about, but there's no reason I can't wear pink goggles. Right. (laughs) So I wore pink goggles, um, and a sparkly lab coat, but I I had the PPE on that I needed. Mm -hmm. And you also touched on a a point that's, that I'd written down, which is what would you say to the detractors, you know, who'd sort of deride the idea of the pageant? We've already said that it's mm-hmm. it's not a pageant and i i think i read somewhere that you had also cited your past activity uh or participation as helping with professionalism interviews just preparing to mm-hmm. speak publicly i think one of the biggest things that students are lacking in this day and age because we're so hooked on our phones and social mm-hmm. you know social media is we forget how personal presentation is so important in our career mm-hmm. and so as a teenager, I competed in some smaller organizations that I got out of them more than anything, interview skills, the ability to speak in front of a group and be comfortable meeting new people and interacting and networking with them. And so that was invaluable. And that's something that isn't necessarily taught in schools. And whether or not, you know, you're a a man or a woman, those skills are really necessary. It just happens that these are programs that are designed for women. Um, But especially as a woman to be competitive in the workplace, Mm -hmm, you have mm -hmm. to have those personal presentation skills. Um, And I think that, you know, Miss America is an organization that exists for teenagers and for young women. Um, And 
it's doing that. It's helping women mm-hmm. define those skills come up. You're, you're required to have a social impact initiative that you work on. So think about a woman's resume going, you know, coming out of college, you've worked on your own social impact initiative. You're comfortable interviewing. You've stood on a stage and you're comfortable, you know, speaking in public, those skills that you necessarily wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. You're getting from this organization and you're getting scholarship money. So it's really a win-win situation for everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you bring up a great point about, you know, the need to be able to to kind of network and be confident in those situations and present. I recently finished a master's in IT um, and people would you know, frequently ask me about that. And I think you're exactly right, um, especially in this field. Unfortunately, it is what it is for the women to compete with the men. They, they can't just be equal. They have to kind of set themselves apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, I think, a little bit of a bias in terms of how women are viewed, especially in these kinds of fields. So I'm curious if you've experienced any of that kind of bias or any kind of negativity or any you know, blowback at all. I haven't personally in my in my career thus far faced really any adversity as a woman. And I think that that might be a testament to the fact that I grew up with a woman who is much stronger than I. My mother is just a hundred percent, just one of the most confident people that I know. Um, and she kind of taught me to, you know, not even acknowledge that Mm -hmm. being a difference and just proceed as if I didn't see barriers there. Um, and so I think that that has been really helpful for me in my career. But I will say, funny enough, yesterday I was at a meeting and it was one of the first times that I've ever had anyone say something to me that I really felt, you know, different as a woman in science. And so I was talking about, you know, girls in STEM and girls in engineering and how a lot of girls, you know, fall out of those careers. And he said to me, he's like, well, I think men are just better suited for, you know, engineering careers because their brains are just wired differently. Wow. (laughs) And so the funny thing enough is now this man very wholeheartedly believed this and Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. you know, men's brains would be wired differently to be more successful in science careers. Mm. And it's really funny because sometimes I think about, you know, my work as a woman in STEM and I'm like, am I beating a dead horse here? Have we already made progress in this world? But in 2019, there are still people that believe that men's brains are wired differently and are more apt mm-hmm. to science. And mm-hmm. I will tell you from a biological perspective, <laughs> although you do have a Y chromosome instead of two X's, um, your brain is wired the exact same way. Um, and so that was really interesting to be able to hear that. Um, and that my role here as Miss Virginia and doing this in terms of outreach and STEM Mm -hmm. is still really needed. And I think that seeing the attention that has gone toward my breaking stereotypes Mm -hmm. as a Miss Virginia in STEM is just showing that our world is craving women in STEM. And we need people like me right now to be able to talk to women and to break those stereotypes because they still exist. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I was at an event recently, a a CISO event, and obviously cybersecurity is not known um, for its equality with women, especially in leadership roles, which is um, a little bit unfortunate. Um, But it was really great because there was a a group of female CISOs. And one of the things that we were discussing was this kind of unconscious bias that frequently it's not hurtful or intentionally malice, but um, just lack of understanding and education. So I think it's so important not only to have women women who can be those role models, but also who are comfortable enough to help educate, right? I think it's about educating, not just women educating, but also the men, you know, that are aware of this kind of stuff coming together, you know, to create those paths forward. So absolutely. I totally agree. Preach. My, uh, <laughs> my, my first lesson in unconscious bias, I was very young. My 
mother got her doctorate and she worked at the State Department. And despite the name plate on the desk saying, you know, doctor, committee, um, the men could all be, you know, doctor this, doctor that, but the students would come to her and it would be Ms. or Mrs. And uh, she would drill them on that. She's like, I earn, I work just as hard mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as those men to earn that PhD. So you, and I earn that title, so you need to use it. And I mean, I think it was like eight or something at the time. And that was just, I, I reflect on that as, as a moment of learning uh, or unlearning that, that bias. Mm-hmm. So you touched on the ability to speak confidently, to interview well. Um, I think that's interesting. My father's always maintained that basically every class you should you ever take from kindergarten all the way through college you should always have to present because mm-hmm. he said it sort of like dies out with the book report sometimes you can get out of it but he said like once you're out of school that's all you're doing mm-hmm. is presenting mm-hmm. yourself in an interview situation mm-hmm. presenting your ideas to get buy-in to do something mm-hmm. i mean that's all you're doing is mm-hmm. essentially selling your ideas yeah. so i think that's interesting i think that's actually i wanted to just point out on that that's a really interesting point but I think a lot of times, too, you have to kind of fight for the stage and the opportunity yeah. to present those ideas. Right. And so from my perspective, I mean, I grew up with two older brothers and I'm used to always having to kind of pull attention and time from them, mm-hmm. which probably, George, you know me pretty well, is probably mm-hmm. reflective in a lot of my leadership. But um, I definitely know as kind of a mentor, one of the things I try and do is mentor some other women. I just think that, you know, they tend to be more reserved or shy and they're not willing to fight for that time or for that space or that, you know, to get in front of an executive and ask for their time. They're, they're a little bit more reluctant. So I almost think, again, it's something that we have to learn. Right. And if, if we were standing back, Mm -hmm. you know, a guy might say, well, you know, women generalizing just don't have as much confidence or they don't have, uh, an argumentative personality, not taking mm-hmm, into account mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. structural inequity that has sort of, you know, bred a certain behavior over a set of time. Um, you also touched on this idea uh, that is very much top of mind uh, to me as a father that we have seen repeated research that uh, boys and girls at a young age have pretty much like the same level of interest. And then there's just this dramatic decline in mm-hmm. STEM. So it's, it's like at the same level and then it just drops kind of, entering into high school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and in in reading about you i had read that you were inspired in eighth grade mm-hmm. um by your science teacher so i was hoping you could speak to like what was that experience and then what did you feel were uh the mechanisms or the encouragement that you got so that you did not see that drop off so for me i was always interested in science that was always something that i wanted to pursue um but once i got into eighth grade um and now i'm actually personal friends with my eighth grade science teacher so if she's listening hi maddie um <laughs> i love her and so she had us read a book called the hot zone and, i love it i love that book okay so if anyone listening doesn't know what it's about it's about um the ebola outbreak Mm -hmm. and um it really inspired my interest in medicine and epidemiology and i thought at that point that maybe i wanted to pursue a career in maybe immunology Mm -hmm. um and i it was one of the first times that i had thought about science in a way that i could see myself in that career path and i was really excited about that and i think that part of there's a couple things i think that happens with girls and of course i don't have data to back this up but my own particular you know experience would tell me that 
it starts to get hard at that level. It starts to, once you get into high school, you're taking mm -hmm. chemistry classes and, you know, intro bio classes. And that's when science starts to get one of, to be one of your most difficult classes, even if it is something that comes naturally to you. And I think that for some reason or another, when girls don't have that passionate interest, like what I gained in mm -hmm. eighth grade, and I saw myself in that career and I, I could, I was excited about it. If you don't have that excitement, when things get really hard, mm -hmm. you just want to run away from it. And I think that... I don't know if there's something that that boys might have a natural inclination to to maybe want to push through that adversity a little bit more than girls do. I don't know what really stems for that. Maybe it's a way that some girls are raised mm -hmm. um, or something in our society. But girls run away from that. And a lot of the time and I see other women who I've gone to college with who have started to get into maybe STEM careers and then it gets hard and then they they move out of it and they change to something easier. Um, but maybe isn't necessarily as STEM related or they, they don't see themselves in that career. And so I hope to be a role model for other girls who see someone who maybe looks and sounds like them who has made it through mm -hmm. um, a undergraduate science program and is now in a graduate science program. And I will tell you, it is really hard and mm -hmm. you need people that you can look toward to say, well, she did it and I can too. Mm -hmm. um, or to see the rewards of what your work can, can bring you toward and see yourself in a career. Because when you have that end goal in mind and you can, you have that passion and you see, okay, this particular really difficult class is going to get me to the goal that I'm looking toward. It makes it a lot different when you're in that class and it gets really difficult. Right. The present is part of the future rather than I, it's just all my yes. living is in this moment. Absolutely. And I think that we need to, to encourage girls to have goals and explore, explore different fields in science because yeah, not you know, just science. if you're a woman large. and so if you love makeup and I know that's a really stereotypical thing that, that girls, especially teenage girls love, mm -hmm. there's so much scientific R and D that goes into every cosmetic product. If you're interested in makeup and you want to design your own makeup line, think about those science classes that you're taking and how the chemistry behind mm -hmm. all of those products are so important. And that, that can be a STEM career. STEM touches every single thing that we do. And so to think about the things that you love and think about how science can integrate into those and how it's so integral in every single thing that we do in our lives um, and to figure out a way that you can find your own passion. And if science isn't for you, then that's mm -hmm. fine too. Um, but to not just discount that just because you don't think you like science. Yeah, my armchair analysis would be around that middle school, high school, that friction is, yes, it becomes, there's suddenly this transition from elementary school where you're sort of all collectively doing it and you're mm -hmm. focused on like the fun outcome. And then suddenly it's like, take notes, yes. copious notes. And then like just the hard work of science, mm -hmm. which is just noting observation, Yes. Uh, write it down. Here's a table, fill it out. Like it could be tedious, but you have to like sort of keep the larger picture it, of the experiment in mind. And I just wanted to ask, cause you mentioned your mom was a great mentor and your eighth grade science teacher. What about the folks that were sitting with you, that kind of real time support system? I imagine, like you said, it does get hard. And I know from my personal experience, the only reason I've been able to hang in tight with IT and continue on is because I've made some really close friendships when it does get hard that these are women that I can reach out to and lean on. Has that been impactful for you? Um, probably less so in terms of people, you know, in my classes. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have, you know, a lot of people that I still communicate with, you know, from my high school mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that when you're in a situation like being in the Miss America organization, I now look toward other women that are my colleagues in that um, and women that I've worked for during my internships. And I can see myself more in those women. Um, and more than anything, my mom and my teachers were my most um, my, my motivators really mm -hmm. throughout that process. And so that 
was, I'm grateful that I had those women to look up to. I had a lot of female science teachers throughout my, my lifetime. And so those were women who I could see myself in, um, and that I hoped to maybe aspire to be like them one day. Yeah. My, my seventh grade science teacher, I, I don't know that she meant this lesson to stand out, but it was, we were studying just like water biology, just like creeks and streams. And we walked out from the middle school and there was this huge suburban development and we looked at the erosion. It was just like so practical. It felt like, oh, it's not just like this little thing that I'm looking at in a book that this is real. Um, Before we were recording, uh, I know that you're doing a lot of work as part of Miss Virginia with schools, uh, obviously a role model for STEM, but you, you said something very interesting was which is that when little girls see you in the crown that that's an opportunity could you expand yes. on that so i get the really exceptional opportunity to wear a very sparkly hat on my head all the time um right. and for our listeners it's making the headphones a little difficult it is um and i have a sash across my chest that says miss virginia um both of which have sparkles on them um many little girls think that i'm a princess a real life princess um i was at an event where there were disney princesses and I was the real princess and those were just the Disney princesses. So this is the perception that young girls have of me. Um, but when they come up to me, that's the, it's kind of the the crown is the liaison between me and young people who are maybe interested to come and talk to me and take a picture, but it gives me the opportunity to talk to them about science and to ask them about what they want to be when they grow up and be able to encourage them and share my story with them. Um, because I remember when I was that age, I was already interested in science. So if they can see someone with a sparkly hat that they think is a princess, but in reality, she's a scientist, that's a really key opportunity for me to be able to make an impact in a child's life. Um, and even if I can just, you know, sign an autograph card for them that has my science, a demo on the back of it, which I made sure mm-hmm. to include so that Brilliant. even if I only can sign an autograph for them, that they take that home and they can look and they can see my science on the back. There's a picture of me in my lab coat right on the back of the card. And oh, so if they can go home and see that when they get home, that I've been able to make an impact. And I, I love that. And I, was, I think we were talking earlier about this kind of duality, mm-hmm. you know, you're a scientist, but you can be both. Right. And I think that's one of the conceptions that, um, you know, I've seen a a number of women kind of face in their lives in terms of there's a perception that you're singular, right? So, you know, you're Miss Virginia, so you're just a pretty face. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you know, why can't you be that? Why can't you also be a scientist? Why can't you also be career driven and be all these other things? Right. So it's great that you're showing that and and being a a great role model in that sense. I think people also don't from the other side, Mm -hmm. when you're being, when you're a scientist and you're in a laboratory Mm -hmm. environment, people question why you would want to do this. Mm. And I had a reporter one time ask me, Camille, you're in graduate school for science. Why do you want to be a beauty queen? And I was like, just kind of taken aback. And I had to describe to her, all of the opportunities that, and that I'm more than a beauty queen, first of all, um, that I this am. isn't a beauty yeah. pageant anymore. Um, and that I am a title holder who has opportunities to be able to really make mm-hmm. an impact in a way that I wouldn't have just been able to as a pharmacy student, like sitting here today at this event for women in innovation, I, I go to school five minutes down the road. Mm-hmm. And unless I was Miss Virginia, I probably wouldn't have found myself here today. I would have been in class and I would have been doing all the normal student things, but being Miss Virginia, mm-hmm 
gives me an opportunity to network and to be able to further my career in a way that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do just as a pharmacy student. And so it gives me so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think just as much as women can take advantage of the opportunities and experiences, even, you know, this morning I thought was really an amazing presentation. And I was telling the presenter, you know, that's not something I ever would have thought to do, but it was really cool to experience Mm -hmm. that. And just the more that you get to to meet new people Mm -hmm. and different ways of thinking and experiencing, I think it just helps you grow. I completely agree. Yeah. So um, let's just take a a moment. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about the programs that you're working on. Um, I read about the Mind Your Meds platform. Um, We are here in Virginia, which, you know, is the epicenter of the opioid crisis gripping America. No one has read Dope Sick by uh, Roanoke journalist. I mean, it started in Lee County, Virginia. So I feel like we're very close to that. Um, yeah, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about Absolutely. That. So I, as a pharmacy student, was hoping, you know, back in April when I was deciding to compete for Miss Virginia, I was required to have a social impact initiative. And I wanted this to not just be something that I was creating because I was required to, but that was something that I was already working on in my life and that I was passionate about. And so at that point, I was already an Narcan trainer. Um, and for those of you who don't know Narcan, mm-hmm. which is naloxone, is the opioid over overdose reversal medication that can save people's lives when they're in an overdose. And so I was already working on that. And I saw a need for education, both on drug safety um, and abuse prevention. And so again, as a pharmacy student, I was seeing parents and caregivers who didn't know how to prevent medication errors in their home and who weren't taking steps that I thought were so obvious um, to protect the people that they were caring for. And so I decided to wrap those two up together and call it Mind Your Meds um, just to keep people aware of the medications um, that they're taking. And so I'm focusing more on prescription medications and over-the-counter medications. So I kind of have two facets of my uh, social impact. And so the first one, which I touched on, is the drug safety. And I think that this really is focused toward parents and caregivers of older adults Mm -hmm. um, and just understanding how what you see in your pharmacy as an over-the-counter medication is not always the safest thing that you can do um, and that they are not benign that if you take them in the wrong dosage the wrong frequency or combine them or combine them with prescription medications that these things can become really dangerous and harmful and that people think that just because you can get them without talking to a doctor that they're just safe and fine Um, and how do you choose the right medication over the counter it's there's not a lot of education and it's it's confusing for me and I'm a pharmacy student and so I can't imagine being a parent of a kid you have think you know you're a mom you have three kids one of them is sick two of them are sick you're in the pharmacy you're stressed out you're trying to just Mm -hmm. decide the kid is screaming and you're sitting there trying to pick what you need how do you know are you reading the box do you really measure out the medication I have I had a friend who jokingly would they would take NyQuil by just chugging it out of the bottle and I'm like do you not use the measuring cup and no why would i use the measuring cup people don't realize what they need to do all the time and it seems obvious to me but it's not always obvious um i also had a, a friend who their child had an infection infection on her finger they thought it was a staph infection and they gave her um medicine and so her, the mom was like well i, I think that you know they, they gave me some kind of weird amoxicillin and so augmentin which is another type of antibiotic is mixed with clavinate and so 
it was amoxicillin clavinate it was augmentin and i know from experience that that has to be refrigerated and so the mom brought the bottle over to me and it was brown and i knew immediately i was like you haven't kept this in the fridge have you and she's like well how would i know it was supposed to be kept in the fridge and i was like it has a label on it that says it needs to be refrigerated <laughs> but when think of this you're right. you're a yes. mom your child has a, an infection on her finger you're busy you have another toddler you miss that one label and you can put your kid in a situation where that medication isn't working well for them or it's hurting them. Um, so that's just one part of that platform. And, you know, especially for older adults, um, they, you know, have the same problems if you're a, a child caring for your parent, same deal. Um, but that other side of this is the opioid epidemic that's happening. And so in Virginia, the hardest hit parts of Virginia are uh, far Southwest Virginia mm -hmm. and here in the city of Richmond. And so I'm a naloxone trainer in the city of Richmond. So I'm able to train people on how to use Narcan. Um, I carry it with me at all times. I have it in my purse right in the other room right now. Um, there's a standing order in the state of Virginia right now where yeah. any person can go and get Narcan and carry it on their person. You can usually get it from your local health department for free um, or you can get it from a pharmacy. You might just have to pay for it. Um, and then you can learn how to use it. It's a nasal spray. It's really easy to use. And so if you ever come across a person in a overdose situation, you can help be that first responder. And it's not harmful to anyone if, if maybe someone is unconscious and you're not sure what's going on and you have a pretty good sense that they're in an overdose situation. If you give them Narcan and they're not, you're not going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's really important. There's really no downside to carrying it with you. Um, and I just want to be able to educate people that this is not just for drug addicts. Um, we have a huge problem with addiction um, in you know opioid situations. Mm -hmm. But people who are opioids are a prescription drug most of the time. And this yes, is what leads in mm -hmm. to, you know, heroin addiction and fentanyl. Um, so those are the illicit opioids. But we have things like Oxycontin yeah. that are prescription drugs that are used for pain management. Um, if you're an elderly adult and you take an extra pill or two that you don't remember that you took, that older adult can end up in an overdose situation. If you have a, a pet that gets into the medication, if you have a child that gets into medication, those people are going to need Narcan to get them back. Um, we also use a lot for law enforcement now. Um, fentanyl is one of the street drugs that's the most dangerous right now, and that can go right through your skin. And so officers have ended up in overdose situations. Yes, I've heard that when they, when they raid or they have yes. to search, they have to wear almost hazmat suits. Yes, because it can go right through. And those they, you can be in a situation you can die. There's been canine officers that have gotten wow. uh, opioid overdoses. You can bring a canine officer back with Narcan, fun fact. Um, so it's so important to educate people on this. And I'm trying to you know make my impact as Miss Virginia being able to go and combat this in whatever way I can. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a really important cause that I think that people don't necessarily know can impact every and any community. It does not discriminate race, age, gender. It's everywhere right now. Yeah. I mean, I just learned quite a bit from all of that. And I have a background in health IT, which obviously mm -hmm. is opioid epidemic is a big part of the problem they're trying to solve with that right yeah. now. And I really like the way that you shared that in the fact that there is somewhat of a stigma attached, right? Mm -hmm. um, but to realize that you're you're absolutely correct. It could be just an elderly person. So I think I need to go get some and get my training and, and be a part I can of teach you how to use it. I would love that. Actually, that would be really cool. Um, so I guess that was kind of another question. So you're saying this is obviously really important. I think it's a huge need right now in the U.S. in terms of um, people like you who are taking action. How do you see a role in terms of STEM um, and your knowledge and your background in terms of kind of changing the future of some of these situations like um, is it about, you know, a policy change with the ability to influence policy and how prescription drugs are managed or distributed? Um, you know, what are the ways that you think that this can be impacted moving forward? 
I think a lot of ways I think that policy can help, but I think more than anything, mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. um, for both people taking the medications and for the providers that are prescribing them. Um, I'm a, as, as a person who is in pharmacy, I think that, you know, anyone in healthcare um, or if you are a patient who's being prescribed opioid medication mm -hmm. to ask for less um, for providers to be prescribing less. I think if anything, legislation should really help to limit the amount of prescription opioids that are given out mm -hmm. at a certain time. Um, I think some prescribers from what I've been able to interact with don't know how much is enough. And so they're over prescribing these medications, especially post-surgery for patients because they don't know how much they're going to need. Um, but to be more conservative with those medications and to find alternates. I mean, Tylenol is a great alternate. You mm -hmm. actually can take more at a prescription level of Tylenol mm -hmm. um, than what's kind of written on that bottle. Um, so to encourage people to, you know, only use maybe an opioid for the first day after surgery or as long as they can tolerate mm -hmm. um, and then switch to something that's more benign. Because um, the chemistry is strong mm -hmm. and yes. it's science. So it's also proven. Like, <laughs> that's, that's why it's so strong. Yes. And it's it's so addictive and mm -hmm. it's you can become addicted to an opioid the first time that you take it. Um, and it's mm -hmm. really a physiological addiction. I think that people also don't realize that this isn't just a habit for people. Right. There is a chemical need for mm -hmm. this in your body at that point where people are not able to control it. Um, and it's almost impossible in most situations for people to get off of an opioid addiction without intervention by some healthcare. Um, there's something called methadone, which is a, it's an, it's another opioid that doesn't produce a high. And so it's kind of like a nicotine patch mm -hmm. for people that are opioid addicted and it helps them get off of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they need medical intervention. And so we need to make, take those steps. You know, if you have someone who's in an overdose situation, giving them Narcan and then taking them mm -hmm. to where they need mm -hmm. to be to get the treatment that they need. Okay. Well, I am getting the signal from the conference organizers that I think you have a photo op. Um, but Camille, thank you very much for taking the yes, time to join absolutely. us. Absolutely. Thank you it so much been, for having me. It's been illuminating. It um, has. I appreciate it. And it's great to meet you. And I can't wait to share this. My niece wants to be a chemist, so she's oh, going to be awesome. super excited um, when I tell her about meeting you. So awesome. thank you again. Thank you both so All much. Right. Thanks. My many thanks to Camille for taking the time out of her busy schedule. And also, we were very happy to be part of Vita's uh, first Women in Innovation event. So thank you to our hosts as well. Uh, turning our attention to the news this week, what are we looking at? We are looking at uh, a WhatsApp vulnerability that I think has since been patched. So WhatsApp and Telegram both have a delete for everyone feature. However, um, researchers found, of course, that in the default settings in WhatsApp, when you hit delete for everyone, it doesn't affect iOS users because those files immediately port over into the My Photos folder. Um, and that has since been fixed. Otherwise, you'd have to pull the images outside of uh, someone's phone, which you can't do. And then we also have new research into the vulnerabilities um, in new IoT devices and popular consumer and enterprise routers. This is probably, you know, the event that portends a lot of the cybersecurity attacks that will be happening once 5G comes online. Um, and we talk a lot about that with Miko. So throwback to that episode. Definitely have a listen if you haven't yet. Yes. Watch out for your toasters. Yeah. They, they want your toaster and they want the network that it's attached to. But meanwhile, researchers continue to provide vendors 
with a laundry list of vulnerabilities to start patching as soon as possible because the scale is unimaginable. Like you could have just millions of devices uh, with remote access vulnerabilities. We're also seeing that Reuters is reporting the signals directorate for Australia is attributing China to a cyber attack on their political parties and parliamentary servers a couple months ago. Yes. Yeah. Earlier this year and months before the election, which was uh, quite the timing, they were able to repel uh, uh, most of the attack and secure the data. No evidence that the data was used to conduct any kind of election interference. Um, in fact, I believe the government is not officially uh, attributing it to China. This is just a report um, and from sources inside the the directorate, but no one is commenting officially. But this brings up a great point. So as we head into October, which is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, or NICSAM for short, we will be having a whole slew of content come your way. We will have a podcast every week, which we're very excited about. Um, we'll have a webinar every week and just a ton of stuff to tr- provide the education that we think is necessary uh, to spread cybersecurity awareness. We're so excited to share all of this information with you all. You can actually find a list of all of our events on our website. So check it out and, and participate in what's going to be a great month. All right. Until then, we will thank, as ever, Abby Bruce for sound design and post-production, Matias Zafaletti for our theme music. If you like what you've heard, uh, feel free to subscribe, leave a rating, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. But until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.